Hey guys, Dylan here, Bailey's husband and guy in charge of the sound. Before we start, you may have noticed that today's episode is out a bit late, sorry about that, and that it sounds a little bit different. Because uh, you know that Andrew is not with us in the room when we record the episode. He actually isn't even in the same time zone. But through the power of editing, we are able to make it sound like he is. Except for this episode, we had some technical difficulties with his recording file. We didn't lose all of it, but there's some that's missing. That means for the first half of the episode, you'll be hearing him through the phone, which we record for reference. Uh, it's going to sound like he's talking to you through a phone. But at around the 19 minute mark when he is giving his very well-researched facts, his voice will magically turn back to normal because that's where the file is. Thank you so much for your patience and enjoy the show. Books, books, books. I've always wanted to do that. Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 130 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Folks, peek behind the curtain. Bailey did that from memory. Oh, ooh, ooh. She usually has a little fancy iPad to help her out. This time, iPad in the house with a sleeping baby, so no, no, no. No, no, no. We are in our new podcast space. <gasps> Maybe it sounds a little different. We don't know. We'll find out later. <laughs> um, it's kind of half set up, but Dylan and I have moved, what, how many miles? Like a mile or two? Two miles. Two miles. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in We have two garages that come with it, and we've used one as a podcast space. So we're surrounded now by cardboard boxes that we need to recycle, um, mm -hmm. and it feels very sort of professional. Well. Andrew's not here, so he can't see. Mm -hmm. I'm just assuming it's the most professional setup ever. I feel like you're at Earwolf right now. We mm -hmm. did we did just notice that there's a wasp nest in here. So. <laughs> yeah, just like at Earwolf. Yeah, so <laughs> that's how everyone sounds so excited and on edge at Earwolf. So speaking of the move, I have to share the big news. What is it, Bailey? Um, you and I already know. I'm just playing along. Yeah, we know it, but we we're gonna pretend. I I have no idea. What, what could it be? Is. There's no way that I could have kept this from you guys until this moment. So, Dylan and I moved into this new place. It's the top of a duplex. It's very nice. We mm -hmm, like it. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know when you move into a new place, you look at the mail that comes to see the name of the previous person that lived there, and you can stalk them a little bit. Wait being a like, minute. What kind of mail do they get? Do you do this intentionally to see the name of the person, or do you yeah. do it by accident? Oh, I've always just learned it by accident. Like, oh, I'm getting this Joker's mail. Andrew, what about you? Do you ever look at the person's name? Yeah, I look at their name, but I um I I don't look at it because I then want to stalk yeah. them. I'll be okay. honest. <laughs> yeah, okay. Not in like an investigatory. <laughs> Okay, fair. I haven't. I didn't do that until now. <laughs> I looked yeah, at the name and it would be like John Sina. Yeah, and be like, oh, this person really likes Sephora. There's a lot of Sephora catalogs that come. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this time, there is a very familiar name. To totally, <laughs> it's familiar to me. It might be familiar to Pages. Mm. The name is Lee Bardugo. Dun dun dun. So dun, dun, dun. Lee Bardugo, the author of the Shadow and Bone trilogy, Six of Crows, and Ninth House mm -hmm. um, lived in our duplex before we did. That and, is insane. And you might say, no, maybe it's just somebody else with the name Lee Bardugo. Nope, nope, nope. Because <laughs> I immediately went to Instagram after I got her HelloFresh offer in the mail. <laughs> and I saw that she has this these pictures of this mantle, this fireplace. And that is our mantle and fireplace. 
Toby can confirm. I can confirm. I have seen the side-by-side photos. Yes. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then we talked to the neighbors living underneath us and she confirmed. We should have done that actually before going to Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) No, Instagram's a much more not having to talk to strangers activity. So I I support it. 100%. So I I just, I mean, there's so many writerly vibes. Uh, We have her shower curtain. You know, <laughs> the bookshelves that we've discussed in previous episodes, they're painted black. Maybe Lee Bardugo did that. I mean, that's a Lee Bardugo vibe, if I've ever heard of one. And I am 95% positive that she wrote the book Ninth House in our apartment. And that's just mind blowing. That just makes me laugh because I've read Ninth House and it's like very East Coast, very like cold winter, like driving rain and snow. And it's just imagining her like typing it away in, in LA. It just makes me laugh. I think she went to school in a place like that. But yeah, she went to Yale. It's based in Yale. Yeah, yeah. But Not that I've been stalking her. <laughs> but it, uh, but yeah, it doesn't match up with uh, the sunny LA surroundings. Yeah. That's just so crazy. It's so crazy. So I was hoping that maybe we would be friends. Um, but, but then it's just so also stalkery to be like, hey, guess what? I live in your house. That is the ultimate stalkery. Um, I'm but, enjoying Ninth House, the but, book that you wrote here. I did DM her um, because we got two anthropology packages delivered to us addressed to her. And like, you know, you need your packages. Yeah. And after yeah. Bailey tried on the dresses and walked around and called herself Lee Bardugo, we then... <laughs> Bailey Bardugo. I did not open the packages, but I did. I was like, okay, now's the time. So I DM'd her on Instagram and was like, hey, this is a little weird, but you know, we have your anthropology packages. I think you lived here. Let me know if there's something you want me to do with them. But I did the thing where I sent the message before I'd finished typing it. So. Oh, you fool. I know. You only get one chance with Lee. Everyone knows that. You press enter, but it does send. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So the message says something like, I got these packages. Congrats on your show. Oh, no. Anyway, uh, she did not respond, but the next morning her frazzled assistant showed up and was like, my boss's packages are here. That makes her sound like she's a taskmaster. <laughs> I didn't master. know that part of the story. That's great. Maybe he reads her messages or maybe he just tracked the package to here. Tell me you messaged her from the to read list account. Oh, I did not. I- oh, Bailey. <laughs> I feel like that would be a weirder thing to do because that would make it seem like it was intentional that you moved there because you had a book podcast, which to be clear... Did not happen. (laughs) This was not intentional. We did not know. I am willing to creep as many people out as we need to, to get this podcast off the ground. Guys, do you think this is where she recorded her book podcast? (laughs) Uh, And I had a book on the to read list by her, Shadow and Bones on my to read list. So I would like to ask you guys formally, can we skip the choosing next week? And can I do Shadow and Bone? No. Fine by me. Okay. Andrew says no. (laughs) Andrew. Okay, fine. Yes! Yay! It's also appropriate because the Netflix just- Exactly, and I want to watch the show, but I can't do it until I read the book, so yay! Choosing, not choosing, choosing over. Hey, we'll see if the, if the number generator is friendly, Dylan. Uh, I also bought all of her books and added uh, six books to my shelf, so it's not a big deal. Uh-oh. Uh, I've read Six of Crows. I really liked it. It's very fun. It's like super fun fantasy done very well. I'm excited. Yeah. That one seems to be the most popular. I think it is. Yeah. I haven't read the other books in the series um, just because I haven't had time to go back to them, but I'm. it's definitely on my list. There's only one more in the Six of Crows. Oh, I thought there was. Okay. Mm-mm. There's. It's a duology. And then I guess it's connected to Shadow and Bone, which is a trilogy. So I bought the other two in the trilogy, <laughs> Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom. And Ninth House. Oh, I, she has one more book that I did not buy, so I restrained myself. Hey, a well bit. done, Bill. Wow. Way to go, Bailey. 
Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody else have any shame to distract from mine? I do have shame. Do, do, do. I do, do, do. It was my birthday on the 14th. Happy birthday. Thank you. And Bailey and Dylan uh, got me a lovely gift. They got me the new George Saunders book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And Lee Bardugo's uh, shower curtain. (laughs) Yes, wrapped up. He teaches a class at Syracuse um, about like reading Russian short stories. Um, And so this is like his class transcribed. It's his master class. There you go. No big deal. (laughs) Um, So they got me that. I'm very excited to read it. Dylan and Bailey also got me a lovely gift card to our local bookstore that we love, Chevalier's. Um, So I don't even know what I'm going to get. I'm going to wander in there and just see what strikes me. But I'll report back to you. I have been there twice in the past week to buy these Lee Bardugo books. And I've told two different store clerks that I live in Lee Bardugo's house and neither were plussed. What? They were just like, cool. I bet they were like saw Lee Bardugo all the time and they're like, this is a pale imitation. <laughs> anyway, I'm excited to see what you get at the bookstore. Me too. Andrew, do you have any shame? Well, I mean, I, I'm not ashamed of it because it hasn't arrived yet. So no big deal. But uh, it's um, a book by one of the soccer podcast authors I listen to. His name's Roger Bennett. It's called Reborn in the USA. And it's about his love of America growing up in Liverpool as a, as a young British lad and bought a copy from this store in Seattle called Elliott Bay Books which they were doing a pre-order thing where if you ordered from them, you'll get a signed copy with like a customized nameplate, which he has been signing while drinking beer at night and they get progressively sillier and sillier. So I'm hoping I get a particularly silly one. That is so cool. That is very cool. Andrew, you have inspired me. I want more signed books. Well, honestly, most of them I've gotten by mistake. This one is one I've actually sought out. I'll sign your books, Toby. Oh, thanks, Bailey. (laughs) Bailey, a person who lives in Lee Bardugo's house. (laughs) Keep on reading. Well, you can add on to the Lee Bardugo thing while you're late on Motherless Brooklyn. Oh, oh, well, I, this is, you know, it's not important, but I maybe started Ninth House and got really into it and then didn't start Motherless Brooklyn, Brooklyn until like a day ago, but it's like not a big deal. Uh, I mean, I have a similar story. I got uh, wrapped up in the new Andy Weir book, Project Hail Mary, and Pedro's five stars. Ooh. So much fun. Out of this world. <laughs> Thank you, Dylan. Uh, I especially like how um, I haven't read his second book, but many people were maybe not as thrilled with it as The Martian. And in this one, he goes right back to the template in a very good way. Like it's just Mark Watney 2.0. Potatoes. Yeah, doing a different kind of thing, but very much like, how will I survive this crazy thing via science? It's really good. Don't you just love it when people like peer pressure artists into going back (laughs) into their comfort zones? I feel like he likes it. I feel like he wanted to do it. Yeah, he better enjoy it. So while you were wrapped up in uh, <laughs> Andy Weir, what were you supposed to be reading, Toby? I was supposed to and did read Ring Shout by P. Jelly Clark. Shout. Makes me want to shout. No? Put my monsters up and shout. Uh, I read this one, too. I read the audiobook. Excellent. Yeah. I read the audiobook as well. Andrew, did you read it? I did read it. Oh, surprise. Yeah, no, I was intrigued. And I, when I learned it was only like 180 pages, I, I uh, grabbed a copy from the old store. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that cracked me up. Andrew's been signing books and, and drinking beer, but he's just signing books. But this is your review of Toby, so take it away. Tell oh, us. thank you for reassuring me. <laughs> All right. Here, how about this logline? In P. Jelly Clark's Ring Shout, a trio of black women in the Jim Crow South use rifles, bombs, and magic swords to battle transdimensional monsters that disguise themselves as the newly resurgent Ku Klux Klan. That is a very good logline. I worked pretty hard on it. Thank you. Um, so this is a very short book and I'm going to get right into my elves and orcs that, I mean, the pitch is right there and there are some twists, but because it's so short, I can't really discuss much of the plot without 
spoiling. Um, so if that log line intrigues you, that's what it's about. Um, and I'll give you a little bit more context when I go through my elves and orcs. So my elves first. Um, first elf, great historical touches. Lots of interesting historical details here, which is the use and descriptions of the titular ring shouts, which were, as I understand them, chants sung by and for enslaved people, um, kind of reaching back into the era of slavery and then coming forth as what you would consider maybe like gospel singing. Is that correct? What do you think? That sounds right to me. Yeah. And they kind of used, um, Clark uses it as a kind of basis of some of the magic, which is really cool. It's like kind of very cultural and historical. I like that. Um, There is a lot of interweaving of the history of the deeply racist film Birth of a Nation. It was the cause, um, one of the causes of the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. And in this book, it is kind of cited as the opportunity that these monsters use to infiltrate our world. And I really like when books do that, kind of use real world events that we're familiar with and interweave them kind of seamlessly, in my opinion, with uh, like fantastical elements. Um, So another elf of mine is excellent body horror and cosmic horror. Yeah, creepy. Uh, It's very creepy, very (laughs) nasty. Um, Clark has his characters get up to some really nasty stuff in this book. Nasty things are done to them. So nasty that I probably, it's not appropriate for me to talk about them on this podcast. Um, So I like it when a book goes there. I like it when it gets gross enough for me to be like, and it did multiple times in there. And and there's just a really deep inventiveness of scary monsters. um, Also interweaved with like historical stuff. And my final um, elf is a really coherent sense of the what if racism was a monster trope, um, which I think we're all kind of familiar with, especially if you're interested in genre books like this. Um, You've seen this a couple times now. And sometimes I feel like in those less straightforward or less good versions of this story, the kind of rules about how the magic works or the monsters work get a little hand wavy. But in this one, I thought it was really straightforward. There was a rule set and we understood why this was happening and what was allowing it to happen. And that was all played out in a very straightforward way, which for me, I always really like. It makes me feel really grounded in the world and allows me to slip more easily into kind of believing that this could happen. So those are my elves. Um, my orcs, I have two. Um, one, The first one is not really Clark's fault. I just felt personally, I'm a little oversaturated on this type of story. In the last year, maybe year and a half, I read Lovecraft Country and I watched the show as well. It's also in Watchmen a little bit. Yes. And I actually rewatched that recently with my wife who was watching it for the first time. So yeah, it's not Clark's fault, but I knew going into this, what kind of story it would be. I was looking for something new And I don't necessarily know if I got anything in here that I hadn't really experienced before in one of those other stories. So not really a knock against the book, but yeah, I I was, I don't know if I found anything new in there, but that is more (laughs) a testament to my reading habits and watching habits (laughs) than anything else. Um, The other orc, which is my biggest one, is the absolute light speed the plot moves at the whole book. This thing has the pedal to the gas the whole time. And for me... It didn't 100% pull off that trick of making you care intensely about the characters in almost no time. It actually kind of fell flat there where it was like we meet a romantic interest one time and then the next time they're in mortal danger. And I'm like, well, I I guess I'm worried. But it's more like you feel like you're supposed to be worried for them. Um, Same thing. We meet the main bad guy, I think, twice, maybe a half more time than that. And then there's a big showdown at the end. So again, it's all a matter of taste, but for me, I didn't feel like I had enough time to get sunk into the plot and really care about the characters. 
I'd say there's like, you know, a full cast of everyone we get named. Maybe it's like 15 or 20 characters on like the good person side. Maybe it's more closer to 15, but still, that's a lot. And that's coming from Toby, too. Exactly. And that's, you know, to be fair, I'm comfortable with the big cast. I love the Stormlight Archive. I love the first Law Trilogy. Like, those have character counts in, like, I think the hundreds. But they're very long books, and they're, like, very long stories, and you, you really care about the characters. So that was probably the biggest thing for me is just, like, I wanted a little more time with people, a little more reason to care about their story. Um, and I just didn't get it. Yeah. That is my experience of reading it. Again, I can't go too much into the plot of it because it happens so fast. I don't want to give it anything away. Um, so overall, I ended up giving it three stars. Okay. Okay. What, what did you think, Andrew? Yeah. I mean, my main orc is a, is a similar thing, which is like a question of, of pacing and whether it, the book pulled off a satisfying story within like the length and characters it was, it was promising. I had a moment where I was like, I guess it's not necessarily fair for me to make too much of a judgment based on that. This is just a short book. But you're right. I felt like this book could have been the exact same plot points over 300 pages. And it would have been maybe a little more satisfying. Like even just describing fight scenes or the like figuring out of things with a little more depth could have added pages here and there. And it maybe would have felt that. But like, just because I feel like books should be that long, does that make this bad? I don't know. So I, I actually was really head scratching about this. Um, so I ended up going four, but I mean, I don't disagree with anything you're saying in your review. What a great name for a villain is, is Butcher Clyde, by the way. That was one thing that stuck out to me. And then all the like body horror, very gross stuff was comfortably uncomfortable. Like I was squirming, but it was it was like a, a fun squirm. And yeah, and it was it was fun to see kind of simple actiony fantasy story told out with such heavy themes. And maybe I just haven't watched or read as much of similar things. So it was kind of new to me. So yeah, I, all of that contributed to one star better for me. Yeah, Bailey, what? How about you? What do you think? Uh, I aired more on the side of Andrew. I agree with all of your takes, but I guess I just gave it for maybe because I haven't read Lovecraft County. <laughs> and maybe if it were set in like the 80s or now, it would feel more fresh. I don't know. Um, but I totally agree with all of you. Um, I just, one thing I want to add is I liked the characters of the aunties. That was cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, they were cool. Without saying too much about who they are, but I liked, I liked those characters. And uh, yeah, the body horror, <laughs> it felt like one of those things where it's like, I didn't know I was terrified of that visual but as soon as you say it i am terrified of course i'm terrified yeah. haunt my dreams and i i would love to see this as like a movie or a mini series and to have like an auteur director like cronenberg or somebody like really like dig into it uh, so i went on with four stars oh, i'm the sour sally again well i think for you two three stars means higher than it means for yeah. me yeah yeah for me i mean three stars is like i liked it four stars is like i really liked it and five stars is like all time so you actually uh, subscribed to the Goodreads scale recommendation, yeah. <laughs> which is liked it, really liked it. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Almost exactly. Uh, Andrew, do you have any facts on P. Jelly Clark? I do. I do. So first of all, uh, I might surprise you to know that P. Jelly Clark's name is not P. Jelly Clark. <gasps> P. Jelly Clark is a pen name for Dexter Gabriel, um, which I think is a great name. Yeah, but, that is uh, a good name. Dexter Gabriel is also a, a like a professor and a historian of oh. a lot of these things that that fed into this and i think i think i didn't actually find this in any of the interviews that it's a, a conscious choice to separate that the academic work and the artistic work makes sense um so like a lot of modern authors there's not a whole lot of like confirmed and like double confirmed uh, uh facts about about p jelly clark by the way pages all of our facts before this double confirmed <laughs> 
So this is going to rely a lot on interviews and also uh, his artistic statement on his website. This is uh, taken directly from uh, Clark's website. Fenderson Jelly Clark is the award-winning and Hugo Nebula Sturgeon and World Fantasy nominated author of the novellas Ring Shout, The Black God's Drums, and The Haunting of Tramcar 15. His stories have appeared online in venues such as Tor.com, Daily Science Fiction, Heroic Fantasy Quarterly, Apex, Lightspeed, Fireside Fiction, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and in print anthologies including Griot's Hidden Youth and Clockwork Cairo. Yeah, I know. We, we, we subscribe to all those. Uh, so the, the rest of our facts about Clark uh, come from a couple of interviews, one with the L.A. Public Library Ooh. and one with a magazine or sorry, an online periodical called Grimdark Magazine. <laughs> Ooh, cool name. Cool name. These first two questions come from the public library interview. And the question is simple. What was your inspiration for Ring Shout? Clark answers. So many things. Where do I start? I first got the notion in my head of the Klan as monsters from reading the WPA ex-slave narratives of the 1930s. Their former slaves described their first Klan after the Civil War in monstrous terms, as haints with, or with horns. Same place I first read about night doctors and ring-shout culture. But I wasn't certain what to do with any of it. I haven't even considered putting all the stuff together. Fast forward almost 15 years later, I got the idea of doing a southern fantasy type story, and I started drawing from all these tidbits I'd collected over time. I found I had the monsters, the magic and everything else I needed right there staring at me. Uh, and this feeds in a little bit to um, to Lovecraft. In this interview, he talks a little bit about Lovecraft uh, country as well, but this is specifically mm. about H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, the interviewer asks, Ring Shout seems to have been influenced a bit by the cosmic horror of H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft was famously racist and sexist, which is reflected in his fiction. With this novella, you join a growing number of writers that are reclaiming some of Lovecraft's ideas and making them into something new and wonderful. Do you have a theory regarding why Lovecraft stories continue to influence and inspire contemporary authors? Heads up, listener, in this interview, I will change a swear word to butthead. Okay. Yeah, there's definitely cosmic horror in there. I think whether one reads Lovecraft or not, his influence is all over the genre. From television <laughs> shows like Buffy to Marvel concepts of cosmic world-devouring beings like Galactus. So you grow up with it. Then you read Lovecraft and you're like, uh, this guy is pretty problematic. And some of the xenophobic meanings behind unknowable horrors lurking on the edge of human civilization give you serious pause. But you still dig tentacles. What are you going <laughs> to do? Give up tentacles altogether? No way. Now you got no tentacles to like, because the guy from way back as a serious butthead thing is marginalized people have been ingesting problematic things in science fiction and fantasy from dark elves on down and loving it through gritted teeth since forever this mm -hmm. isn't a new thing for us so when we're fortunate enough to get the chance to flip the script to use those same tentacles to tell stories from different perspectives we take it and i think there are lots of readers consumers of genre of all backgrounds who with relief are like finally strong agree but I like tentacles. <laughs> yeah, you gotta have them. Uh, these last two tidbits come from the interview with Grimdark Magazine. Uh, the question asker asks, what was your inspiration to separate the Ku Kluxes from the clans in Ring Shout? That's something that we didn't really talk about, but there are actual monsters that are called Ku Kluxes in this, and then clans are human beings who are members of the clan. Clark answers, while the story didn't begin to bubble up as an idea until 2015, some of its elements have been with me for a minute. That was my invitation to imagine over the familiar white sheets and hoods as something more sinister, inhuman, what the characters refer to as Ku Kluxes, as opposed to still human clans. But I also didn't want to fall into the trap of ascribing those monsters' acts to just mindless monsters. That would be too easy, evading responsibility for crimes carried out by all too human hands. I wanted to convey that to go down that dark road to become a monster is in many ways a choice. You don't just end up there. You always Always have chances to walk back before it's too late. Mm, that's really interesting. Great answers. Real quick, some other fun facts. Uh, 
In your other life, you are an academic historian. How difficult do you find it to switch between the two modes of writing? Uh, Not difficult, I'd say. Kind of like flicking a switch, but I tend to keep the two separate as far as writing style. I even have a different laptop for both. (laughs) How I write creatively is not how I write as an academic. I tried to blend the two to make my academic work more literary. Ah, didn't like it. What I do is I put on my tentacles. And I get out my fantasy laptop. He has he has like a tentacle-covered laptop with like big foam tentacles, and then he has like a Dell. <laughs> Last thing I'll say, he had a new novel come out on May 11th. Oh. And it's the first in a series uh, that he is writing, and it's called A Master of Jinn, spelled D-J-I-N-N. Um, so check that out if this sounds interesting to you. It's a, it's a bit of a longer read. Mm. Mm. But that's what you wanted, Toby. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it might be, yeah. might be into it. All right. Could be cool. Well, Ring Shout by P. Jelly Clark three stars because toby's opinion is the one that matters oh wow i so rarely hear that um yeah and if i i read the audiobook um but if i had it on my shelf i think i would probably uh, donate it bailey donate keep if it was on your physical i'd shelf. probably donate it too yeah it is a cool cover though it's very cool it's a cool cover are you keeping yours andrew i'm keeping my copy all right there mm-hmm, you go mm-hmm well, Bailey, Yo. you'll have another chance to keep another book on your shelf because you also read a book, if I'm not mistaken. <gasps> that is correct. I read it furiously once I tore myself away from Ninth House. Did you not even get to finish Ninth House? You had to no. interrupt it? Yes. Oh. How is Alex going to survive? I don't know. I don't know what's up with Darlington. Mm. Anyway, Motherless Brooklyn. <laughs> Uh, so I read Motherless Brooklyn by Jonathan Lethem. This book, along with, um, what was that Wally Lamb book I read? Twins. Twins. I know this much is true. I know this much is true. Um, this one, along with I know this much is true, I picked up because I remember it from like my parents' bookshelves. Oh, okay. um, it was in the study for a long time. And when I came across it at a library book sale, I was like, all right. There are so many books from my parents' bookshelves that I would never, ever pick up. <laughs> I think that was on my parents' bookshelf, too. I think oh. it was pretty hot, like, in the yeah. 90s. Oh, not to spoil it, but, yeah, no, it was, it was a popular book when it came out. Hot in the 90s. And I remember the cover, but I remember picking it up at the library book sale, thinking, like, what was this one about? And I was like, oh, it's about a detective with Tourette syndrome. That's so interesting. Uh, I also read Jonathan Lethem's more recent book, The Feral Detective, and I liked it. And I was like, oh, I'll probably like this one. Okay. So this one, they made it into a movie a few years ago. Dylan, I will let you out of your cage for 30 seconds later, not now, to discuss your feelings on the movie, Motherless Brooklyn. Suffice it to say, the movie is very different from the book. Okay. Um, But the book follows a detective with Tourette syndrome, like I said. His name is... (laughs) Oh, bad sign. His name is Lionel Esrog, and he has, um, his tics are either like touching things a lot or um, moving his head or um, verbal tics where he will say people's names or say swears or that sort of thing. And depending on how comfortable he is in a situation, he will have more or less tics. And it's kind of interesting to see, first of all, like to use that as a way into understanding his state of mind, but also because it's first person, it's from his perspective you really get a sense of, of what that must feel like. And I think Jonathan Lethem describes it really well. So I'm going to give a quote so you can see. This is right from the beginning. So he's discussing what his tics are like. They're an invisible army on a peacekeeping mission, a peaceable horde. They mean no harm. They placate, interpret, massage. Everywhere they're smoothing down imperfections, putting hairs in place, putting ducks in a row, replacing divots, counting and polishing the silver, patting old ladies gently on the behind, eliciting a giggle. Only, here's the rub, when they find too much perfection, when the surface is already buffed smooth... 
the ducks already orderly, the old ladies complacent, then my little army rebels, breaks into the stores. Reality needs a prick here and there, the carpet needs a flaw. My words begin plucking at threads nervously, seeking purchase, a weak point, a vulnerable ear. That's when it comes, the urge to shout in the church, the nursery, the crowded movie house. It's an itch at first, inconsequential, but the itch is soon a torrent behind a straining dam. Noah's flood. That itch is my whole life. Here it comes now. Cover your ears. Build an ark. Eat me, I scream. Hot diggity dang. It's well written. Yeah, that's great. It doesn't take place in the 1950s. Dylan, I'm giving you a meaningful look. Because not. Um, and the plot is that uh, Lionel and a few of his friends grew up in an orphanage. They're motherless Brooklyn. And they are kind of adopted by this mobster type guy hmm. uh, named Frank Mina. And in the beginning of the book, Frank Mina is killed and Lionel is trying to solve the murder. Oh, so he's not like a my job is detective. He is, oh, okay. but like they don't get that many cases. It's it's a lot of like sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. Yeah, yeah. And this is like sort of his first big case. Okay. So I liked that. I was worried because I'm not a huge fan of noir. I don't like Dashiell Hammett. I don't like like that very bossy, you know. <laughs> that is film noir. <laughs> and so I was a little bit worried about that, but the perspective is interesting enough and when he goes into his backstory about being in the orphanage and coming to terms with his tics and putting a name to it that i found really interesting and it made everything else i don't know worth reading (laughs) (laughs) i mean the the case wasn't the most interesting to me but it all wrapped up in interesting way and it brought up a lot of settings you wouldn't necessarily expect and i don't want to spoil it in case you haven't read it Mm, surprise they go to manhattan Another thing worth noting is when Lionel has his tics, he sort of addresses his tics. He calls them Bailey. That's their name. So he'll say like, eat me, Bailey, or whatever. (laughs) And a lot of the book, he's joking about who is Bailey. And I'm here to say, I am Bailey. It is me. (laughs) Do we ever find out if the, because I think Bailey can be uh, used as a male or female. It's a man. It's a man. He's thinking maybe it's George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. He's not sure where it came from in his head. but Okay. Anyway, um, so those were all things I liked. Um, I read it really quickly, both because I had to and because I think it's pretty readable. I think it could be tightened a little bit, but it's 300 pages, not that long. (laughs) I could have been faster to get back to Ninth House. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I don't have any explicit orcs, except that as I was reading it, it made me dislike the movie, which I used to think was perfectly fine. And now I agree with Dylan. So now it's time before I give my star rating, I'm going to let Dylan out of his cage for 30 seconds, tell us why you hate the movie. Okay, we saw Motherless Brooklyn, the Edward Norton movie that nobody else saw because it bombed for good reason at the Telluride Film Festival when it was like this new huge thing. Mm-hmm. And I actually, re- I think I read Motherless Brooklyn because I knew it was going to be there. You knew it would be at the festival, so you wanted to read the book first. Yeah. Basically, Edward Norton hadn't directed a movie in like 15 years or something, so it was a big this deal. This feels like for 30 seconds, you're spending a lot of, no, I'm just kidding. It was the dumbest thing ever that they decided to make it a film noir. That, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes that, sense. that makes total it's sense. A, it's a detective about everything. And then also get rid of everything else in the book. By by making it a film noir, they set it in the 1950s. Yeah. Basically turns it into Bailey's nightmare of like, yeah, see, <laughs> detectives. And maybe it, I want to see this it, movie. And there was a lot of parts in this book where it's like, I wonder how they're going to get all this internal mental stuff and mental anguish, especially from the orphanage and how this Tourette's thing carries on into the movie. Answer, they don't. Answer, they just don't address it. Oh, I wonder oh. how they're going to uh, show these kind of characters interacting because he's kind of unweaving this mysterious father figure. They don't. They just deal with the politics of the time. Yeah, Robert Moses is bad. 
There okay. was a lot of racist housing policies in New York. And mm-hmm. jazz existed. And jazz existed. It's two and a half hours long. Ooh, it is the most long. cliched movie. Like you will literally call the ending an hour and a half in. And so afterwards we came out and I was like clenching my fists in rage. I think we all came out of it like, oh, that was a fine detective story. And Dylan was just seething. And as I read it, I understand. Here's the thing. It made me sound like I was so protective of Motherless Brooklyn. Like, how dare they not respect the text of this book? It's an okay book. It is. It is <laughs> I was going to say, did you even rate it five stars? It or something? is good, but the but like why even try to make it? I think he just wanted to play a character that had Tourette's and then was a detective, and that's it. It almost felt like he didn't even read the book. It, oh. it felt like he was angry at Jonathan Latham for some reason. <laughs> And and I got angry because I thought, you know, this isn't a perfect book, as you say, but there's enough in here for a movie. Yeah. And I would rather watch that movie than the movie that we saw. So I agree with you, Dylan. How many stars do you give the movie, Dylan? I give it negative four stars. <laughs> wow. I feel like that's a bit harsh. I think yeah. it's probably like a two star movie, but I gave it a three star for a book, you know, three bordering on four. But yeah, I think interesting perspective, solid detective story, three stars. I'm going to put it in my little free library. Oh, Yeah. Andrew, do you have any facts on Jonathan Lethem? The Lethster? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let him loose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Dylan, you got to get back in your cage, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. God, we almost let Dylan out of his cage forever. Can you imagine? Oh, oh. So, yeah, Lethem was born on February 19th, 1964 in, you guessed it, Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn. Um, but does he have a mom? <laughs> I literally wrote that joke into my facts, and then his mom died when he was 13, so I felt bad about oh, no. it. Deal with your shame now, Dylan. His mother was a political activist, and his father was an avant-garde painter. He grew up in sort of a commune in Gowanus. If anyone knows Brooklyn, Gowanus is like far western a little south and it was described as sort of a a non-traditional upbringing he remembers it as being thrilling uh later on he realizes that he was actually living like a quite a poor upbringing but he just wasn't really aware of it um his mother as i said died of cancer when he was 13 and he points to this trauma as being fundamentally influential to his work he pursued visual art in high school trying to go into his father's footsteps and even went to college uh, to pursue that uh, but he struggled during his time there both with what he wanted to do he was realizing he was he was more into writing than than painting um and also with the class divide which all of a sudden he sort of started to realize like he didn't come from the same background that his classmates came from he dropped out in his sophomore year and then hitchhiked across the country with 40 bucks in his pocket ending up in san francisco after he settled in san francisco he began working in used bookshops and uh, writing on the side so basically he lived a rom-com except without probably the rom-com side of it like he's working in the old bookshops and trying to work on his novels mm-hmm. <laughs> he's living your life toby <laughs> he's wearing a bowling shirt because it's the 90s um, he started publishing short stories pretty quickly, um, and his first novel, which is called Gun with Occasional Music, uh, was published in 1994. It wasn't a major hit, but it got well-reviewed and like got uh, some like starred reviews in, in some publications that grew its prominence, so he was able to get enough money from that to write full-time. Since then, he's pretty steadily put out more work. Um, he moved back to Brooklyn in 1996. And in 1999, Motherless Brooklyn, which vaulted him to sort of mainstream success and widespread praise, uh, came out. The 2019 film, 
was optioned by Edward Norton in 1999. So it was a 20-year delay from Edward Norton deciding he wanted to play uh, this character to it actually coming out. And apparently the other 20 years was enough for it to be ruined for Dylan. to get it just right. <laughs> he said, it's like, well, I couldn't get the movie made. So I decided to set in the 50s to, to like, you know, kind of streamline it. And it's like part of my story is like, that's not cheaper. That's not easier to do. Dylan, I'm so sorry. Get back in your cage. <sighs> I I'm escaped. Sorry. I unlocked the ca- door. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be silenced. Um, he has continued to publish work across a variety of different genres and styles, uh, including essays, interviews. He did a big old interview with Bob Dylan for Rolling Stone, all kinds of stuff. Basically, he seems wow. like he's been able to turn all of his passions into projects he gets to work on. So good for him. And along with that, there's also been a steady stream of novels, most notably probably The Fortress of Solitude, which came out in 2003 and also opened the door for him receiving a MacArthur genius grant, like so many of the authors on this podcast before him. Geniuses. All geniuses. Geniuses. Um, He's been married three times, first to author Shelley Jackson and currently to filmmaker and actor Amy Barrett, not the Supreme Court Justice. Um, (laughs) He is a professor at Pomona College. um, And as of 2007, this is when I I last saw this info, he split time between uh, Pomona and then also Brooklyn and Berwick, Maine. I saw that. Mm. He thinks he's cool because cool people split their time between Brooklyn and Maine. I'm from Maine and I live in Brooklyn. He has two children and his most recent novel, The Arrest, was published in 2020. Very cool. Nice. Good job, Jonathan Letham. Good job, Andrew. Good job, Andrew. Great facts. Yeah. Five star facts, three star book. Give this man a MacArthur (laughs) Genius Grant. (laughs) He is so good at reading Wikipedia articles and interviews and making them into facts. Don't give away our secret, Andrew. They're all double checked. (laughs) Uh, So Motherless Brooklyn by Jonathan Letham, three stars, and Andrew. Andrew, tell me, tell me, tell me that you created a game for us this week. Oh, yeah, I did. Baby boy. Yay, baby boy. Um, Yes. That's weird. I don't (laughs) like that. All right, baby boy Toby and the rest of the gang. um, (laughs) Here's your your game. We're going to do a cooperative game. Mm. Ooh, what? You guys are going to be working together to solve a murder. Ooh. In this week's game... Brooktectives. 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 So here's how Brooktectives works. Uh, I'm going to read you a little scenario, and then Mm -hmm. I'll explain the rules of what you're going to be doing. Uh, But just so everyone knows where the inspiration came from, obviously, Brooklyn and Detectives comes from Motherless Brooklyn. And uh, using movies, which you'll see why in a minute, comes Mm -hmm. from the Mm -hmm. fact that Birth of a Nation is central in Ring Shout. Can we play as detectives? Your personas are up to you this time, but I do encourage you to to take on personas. Okay. Okay. So you are a team of detectives. All three of you. Dylan can play as well. Also, in this world... um, which is a modern world. You don't have the internet, so you can't use the internet. Okay? Okay. Because okay. you may ask, when you get to the end of this scenario, couldn't we just look these things up on the internet as detectives? And the answer is no. They well, can't do that uh, in Motherless Brooklyn. Well, yeah, you know, it tallies with my uh, character that I'm creating because I'm a sentient police dog. In the book, there's a, a big <laughs> po- uh, plot point that he finds a cell phone. He's like, ooh, a yeah. cell phone. <laughs> that would be exciting for me, too. Barky, the police dog. <laughs> All right, Barky and the gang. Uh <laughs> So here's here's the scenario. You're trying to solve a series of grisly murders that have been terrorizing Brooklyn, New York City. Uh, it turns out the serial killer is one of those serial killers who likes to leave puzzles behind. Uh, they've baffled you for years, but this time they might have accidentally left a clue that could crack the case wide open. At the last crime scene, you found a map of Brooklyn with the neighborhoods highlighted. Written in the margins of the map is a list of movies and a list of neighborhoods. Okay. 
So these films, you realize, have all been set in specific neighborhoods. Okay. So you've seen something like this before, and you know that if you draw lines between the neighborhood and the movie that is set there, the point where all the lines connect is going to be the location of the next murder. Do not overthink how you know this. You don't have much time. This is all intuitive to Barky the police dog. I'm the femme fatale. I think Martha Scorsese might be the killer. (laughs) What's your femme fatale name? My femme fatale name is Sandy Koufax. <laughs> Sandy Koufax. Love it. Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher, Sandy yep. Koufax. Yep, that's that's what came up. Barky approves. Dylan, you still have time. You can think about it while I read you the possible scenarios here. Yeah, yours better be so the best if, of all. If you get one to two correct, you send an innocent man to jail for the rest of his life. Oh, no. If you get three or four correct, the location is just some guy named Carl Goldberg's house, and he definitely didn't do it. If you get five correct, the location is just some guy named Carl Goldberg's house, and he definitely didn't do it, but you become best friends. Six, you're too late, but you find hard evidence that helps the case. Seven, you're too late to stop the murder, but you catch the murderer. And eight, you arrive just in time and catch the murder in the act to save the victim, who happens to be Carl Goldberg's uncle, Terry. Is it out of eight? Or do we have to get all of them right? Well, if you get eight right, you get the best possible result. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> So, here are the movies and the areas. Do the Right Thing, Dog Day Afternoon, Requiem for a Dream, On the Waterfront, The Squid and the Whale, Brooklyn, Moonstruck, and Saturday Night Fever. And then The Neighborhoods, which again, I've put through another randomizer, so there's no question about you getting any info from me. Park Slope, Coney Island slash Brighton Beach, Bed-Stuy, Windsor Terrace, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn Heights slash Carroll Gardens, and Red Hook. All right. And then also Carroll Gardens separately. Oh, okay. I think uh, now would be a good time to mention that I've been in New York for probably about 72 hours in my entire life. Have you ever seen a movie set there? Well, I'm the femme fatale, and I lived in New York for three years, and I should know more, but I know that there's a uh, uh, Bed-Stuy do-or-die saying (laughs) in the film, do the right thing. So 100% Bed-Stuy is do the right thing. My name is Dan Fisher. I'm a private detective that's about 20 minutes away from retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope he survives. So, uh, Dan, do you agree with me? I do have to agree. Because Ooh, the Right Thing was definitely set two blocks away from our house when we lived in (laughs) Bed-Stuy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Cool. uh, What about you, dog? What's your name? Barky. We've (laughs) we've worked together for my entire life. (laughs) I'm so pretty. I don't have to worry about these things. You have to worry about Barky if you piss him off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but guys, if you were to look up my name in the phone book, what would you find? I forgot, I forgot your name, your name. already. Dan Fisher. Fisher Dan. Fisher Dad? Fisher Dad. Mm. Um, well, Barky has mm. his own motorcycle that's specially built to ride, but that's just that's pretty good. another here Um, I think Squid in the Whale would be Park Slope. Squid in the Whale is Park Slope. Um, okay. Uh, Coney Island, Brighton Beach is Wakum for a Dream. And how does Dan Fisher know this? I followed um, the sap Jared Leto as he moved a TV around <laughs> Brighton Beach in the 90s. Well, On the Waterfront the probably takes place close to the water. So, so maybe that would be Red Hook? Red Hook, yeah. Okay, so which ones we have left? We have Windsor Terrace left. We have um, Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn Heights slash Carroll Gardens, and Bay Ridge. And the movies we have left are Moonstruck, Saturday Night Fever, Brooklyn, Dog Day Afternoon. We need more. We're, we got to get this killer. Well, we might as well guess, too. Yeah. yeah. 
Moonstruck is said amongst like an Italian family. Or is there a specific Italian neighborhood? Like Bay Ridge? I don't know. Sounds like a thing. Sure. Okay. Barky lunges forward and, and proclaims Moonstruck, Bay Ridge. Um, Windsor Terrace would be, I don't know. I want to say Brooklyn for that one. You're going to say Brooklyn. Okay. And then, yeah, our trailed chair she wrote in, but she shook me off somewhere near uh, Windsor Terrace. <laughs> I think oh, Saturday Night Fever, let's say Brooklyn Heights slash Carroll Gardens. And then mm-hmm, Dog Day mm-hmm. Afternoon would just be Carroll Gardens because doesn't that just take place like at the robbery? Yeah. Uh, so I hope you could keep track of that. Um, otherwise, I could be dangerous, Femme Fatale. <laughs> I, I have been keeping track and you guys did pretty good. Yes. Nice. Actually, now that I look at the scoring scale, you didn't do that great. But here we uh-huh. go. Oh, no. You got four out of eight correct. Indeed, uh, indeed, do the right thing is in Bed-Stuy. Indeed, Requiem for a Dream is Brighton Beach slash Coney Island. And on the waterfront is Red Hook on Squid and the Whales Park Slope. However, Dog Day Afternoon takes place in Windsor Terrace. Um, Barky Brooklyn takes known. place in Carroll Gardens. Moonstruck takes place in Brooklyn Heights slash Carroll Gardens. And Saturday Night Fever is in Bay Ridge, baby. Okay, well, I'm retired, so don't have to worry about that. Barky can't stand to see another miscarriage of justice. So did we arrest the wrong man? <laughs> no, no, you didn't get two or, or fewer. You got four points. So your result is this. The location is just some guy named Carl Goldberg's house, and he definitely didn't do it. Had you gotten one more correct, you would have become best friends with Carl Goldberg. But alas, he just kind of politely closes the door. <laughs> I used to be best friends with the femme fatale, but then she totally shafted me. Well, time to take my pension and go out to a boat on the lake and start fishing. <laughs> ah. Ah. All right. Well, now's the time on the podcast where Dylan gets to shine outside of his cage. That would be the choosening. <laughs> shine the outside choosening. of his cage. Sh- choosening. The choosening. To be the clear, choosening. this is this is the part where Dylan chooses books at random from our shelves. Partially. Because... I convinced you guys. Bailey is using her... One of her banked geographical pick from way over in the first few episodes sure. of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think at some point we did allow people to bank their picks and no one ever used them. So Bailey is using them now. I'm doing it. Number 74. Shadow and Bone by Lee Bardugo, my best friend. Heck yeah. Also, I probably will have finished Ninth House. So if you're a kind of person that wants to read everything, it'll be Ninth House and Shadow and Bone. What does Toby have? Well, the thing is that I can't see it. It's too hard to read. I guess it's Out of Sight, number <gasps> 54, by Elmer Leonard. Ooh, awesome. That's this, a detective book. Well, is yeah. it? I don't, I don't even know the plot of this one, but um, I have read many, many Elmore Leonard books. It's always a good time. Have you seen the movie? Nope. It's Dylan's favorite. Well, one of Dylan's favorites. Yeah. Ooh, maybe we can watch it together before the episode. Movie night. Please don't wake, make me watch it again. Okay. Oh, really? No, it's fine. It's just, it's fine. She doesn't get it. <laughs> so in two weeks, Andrew is reading The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern, and I am reading Ninth House and Shadow and Bone by Lee Bardugo. Dun, dun, dun. Heck yeah. Party City. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us at the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at the To Read List Podcast and on Instagram at the To Read List Pod. If you enjoyed this podcast so much, you just have to shout, shout, shout about it. Please go to your podcast rating app of choice and give us five whole stars. And if you want to help us out, word of mouth is our best way to find new listeners. Uh, so tell a friend, uh, shout it out to all of Brooklyn, or if you don't live in Brooklyn, uh, you know, whatever town you live in, yell in the street. 
Thank you. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.